Well, some of the most uh, encouraging and helpful books that I have on my bookshelf are uh, those that describe the lives of Christians who have lived before us. Christian biography, if you will. I, I've brought a, a few of the books that have impacted me. I just looked at my bookshelf this week and kind of grabbed them. This is one. Avon and I read this uh, soon after we were married together out loud and just a, a precious treasure to me. It's uh, Charles Spurgeon, a, a greatly blessed preacher of God in London, uh, born in 1834, died 1898. Just God blessed him greatly. This tells the early years. Also, again, another volume like this telling of the later years. Uh, very much um, a help as he opens up his heart. Uh, another one I've, I've really liked uh, is this one. I, I know we, we passed this around a few years ago. How many of you read Ed and I'm Judge Since the Golden Shore? How many of you guys joined in on that? Quite a few of you. This tells of Adoniram Judson, who uh, basically left America, left home, never to return again. Though he did return just once, I think, to get him a wife as he went back to to Burma. But uh, it's a riveting story of of a man who's left all for the kingdom of God and faced uh, a different climate, a different culture, everything in in Burma. That's it's been helpful to me as well. Uh, you know, another one I've got here. Let's go, let's go here. Uh, this little book called Tortured for Christ. Are you familiar with this one? Richard Wormbrand, the uh, founder of um, Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, he was a Romanian pastor in the, in the eight, 1930s, 40s when communism was at its height. A lot of religious uh, persecution for those in Romania. Tells of his imprisonment, tells of his torture. Um, just an amazing, amazing book that stirs, stirs my heart as well. Uh, also, here's one I've got here. This is um, this looks like every other Banner of Truth book, so you don't know it. But this is uh, uh, D. Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, he was a physician in uh, in England, St. Bartholomew's Hospital, very famous physician. He was Dr. Horder's um, uh, assistant. Had a very promising medical career ahead of him. Um, then he came to the knowledge of Christ and forsake forsook his uh, physician occupation and then pastored a little church in Aberavon in Welsh in uh, not Welsh Wales and um, we've read this book out loud as well and like the second volume is about three times as big as this one uh, but good this first one though is particularly riveting as it tells of the revival that took place in Aberavon when when he was there he eventually took over Westminster Chapel in place of um, of um, who am I thinking of what's his name uh, I'll, I'll remember it halfway through my sermon, but that's okay. Um, that's a great, a great biography. I also read uh, this one, The Triumph of John and Betty Stamm. They lived in China in the 1930s during the, um, um, during the height of the Civil War in China. They actually were taken captive by Chinese soldiers and then were, uh, were put to death. Uh, they were missionaries over there. It's a great story, the triumph of John and Betty Stam. The great, great story of this is uh, they're being led away to executions. People ask, where are you going? And John said, I don't know where they're going, but we are going to heaven. It's a great stirring uh, book as well. Uh, another, another biography I've really loved is, uh, is this one. Uh, Dr. Bob Hockman, A Surgeon of the Cross. This was a, a homemade one because this is, tells the story of Ruthie Bell. Some of you know Ruthie. Um, uh, Gordy was, was here, an elder of the church, and they go to church now close to their home. Uh, this tells the story of his dad, her dad, who was a surgeon, 
medical missionary over in uh, Ethiopia. And um, then uh, he and his wife, Winnie, were pregnant. Winnie was pregnant, actually getting later on. And so because it was a difficult time of the war, uh, he sent her off to Egypt to uh, have um, Ruthie being born. Actually, she was born. He got word of it. And then before he could get back to even see Ruthie, he uh, was defusing a bomb like he would do with his physician skills, and it blew up in his face. And he, um, uh, he then died several days later, but he knew uh, that he had a, a daughter uh, in Egypt. It's a, great, it's a great story of him and his sacrifice. Um, I've got a couple more. Here's a story of uh, Brother Yoon, uh, the heavenly man, is what this is, this is called. It's a story of a, of a Chinese pastor who's been imprisoned and persecuted much for his faith. Uh, now, actually, he is out of China and um, free, a little bit like Richard Wormbrand, but has a great heart to really alert people to the suffering and persecution going on in China. Uh, it's called The Heavenly Man Story of, of Brother Yoon. Very, very encouraging. I started this one because Gordy Bell told me about it. I started, I could not put this one down was very good. I got another one here, Out of the Depths. This is John Newton's autobiography. You know John Newton. What famous hymn did he write? Amazing Grace. And uh, he was a slave trader. This is basically an extended testimony of uh, his life. So a lot of it talks about just his slave trading, his growing up, his wicked ways. And then about three quarters of the book, he's converted uh, by God's wondrous grace. And then he wrote the song. Uh, obviously, he's a great a great book. I've been riveted this past week. I, uh, I gave my wife an iPod Touch for Christmas last year, and uh, she never learned how to use it. So now, this Christmas, I got an iPod Touch, and I'm learning how to use it. Well, I just put an electronic book on here, because John Piper mentioned how he had uh, just read something recently. He read uh, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. You ever know who Frederick Douglass is? You kids? Yeah, Nathan, who's Frederick Douglass? Abolitionist former slave, escaped to uh, the north. And so I just started reading. I could not put that down. In fact, one night we went to bed pretty late. I was telling Yvonne how thrilling, exciting it was and kind of telling her she was, I think you fell asleep on me as I was telling you about it. But there's something about um, the stories of people. And, and you know, for uh, Frederick Douglass, his autobiography isn't so much a Christian autobiography as much as it is just a story of, of his life, although he does put some things in there that I think he was a, a believer um, but these are the kind of works that have really helped me and stirred my soul like, like no others. And down through the, the centuries, Christian biography has always played a place in God's people to, to stir them. There's something about reading the lives of people, Christians, who have faced lives of persecution and difficulty and hardship and have stayed true and strong throughout it that also encourages our faith to do the same thing as well. And if you haven't done so, I encourage you to read some Christian biography as well. Uh, if you want some information, I give you some of these books. I'll lend you the, any of these books if you want to read them, if they touch your hearts. Because they will stir your heart in a fresh way. Um, maybe it's never been stirred before. And that's what Hebrews 11 is about. We've come in our exposition of the, of, uh, the book of Hebrews to the 11th chapter. And uh, the 11th chapter is really Christian biography as well. In many ways, it, it records the faith of many of the Old Testament saints, what they'd gone through and how difficult things were and yet how they persevered. In many ways, Hebrews 11 is for the book of Hebrews what Christian biography is to the life of Christians. It's one of the reasons this chapter exists is to help us see the examples of those who went before us and realize that we can press on by faith as they did as well. 
Particularly, this chapter is looking to encourage Jews who have who've come into the church and seen Jesus, have been interested in Him, and yet uh, are being pulled away by their Jewish counterparts to the temples and the fat sacrifices and the rituals and the festivals. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying, no, stay true. And look at all these men who stayed true, men and women as well. And the reason why he goes into speaking about all this, these people about faith is because of chapter 10, verse 35 where he says this, an application to the readers. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. In other words, God has given us a promise of an eternal inheritance. If we but believe in His Son, believe that He died for our sins, in whom we can rest, and we can obtain that promise by faith. As it says in verse 38, My righteous one shall live by faith. And, and what he's going to show here is all these Old Testament saints live by faith. You too can live by faith and persevere until the end as well. So far in Hebrews 11, as Phil referred to in his prayer, we have looked at Abel in verse 4, who offered a better sacrifice through faith than his brother Cain did. We saw in verse 5, Enoch, who walked with God and God took him up so he would not see death because he was pleasing to God. And now today, we're going to look at the life of Noah, a man who witnessed the destruction of the world. My message this morning is simply entitled this, The Faith of Noah. We're going to look at one verse this week. It's verse 7. In fact, uh, Adrian, if you could put verse 7 up there on the overhead. I want us to read it all out loud. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark, for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By way of outline this morning, I'm just going to pick out seven phrases in this text starting at the beginning and just kind of working our way through. I've got seven words to form an outline as we just work through Noah's life. We get a snippet here of Noah and his faith. And my first word this morning is the word warning. It's a warning. And you can see that there in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark. There it is. He was warned of something. I think you kids know what he was warned about, right? What was he warned about? Yeah, what was he warned about, Ethan? The flood was coming. The actual wording of the warning is in Genesis chapter 6. So I invite you to open your Bibles. Turn to Genesis chapter 6 that Phil even already read for us. And we're going to keep that verse on the screen so you don't have to go back to Hebrews 11. It's going to be right up there for you the whole time. But we're going to be the rest of our time just in Genesis 6, letting Hebrews 11 verse 7 stir what we should learn about, um, about Noah. Noah's warned in verse 13, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make an ark, the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. There it is. Worldwide destruction. The end of all flesh is coming. The warning is repeated again in verse 17. Look down there. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish My covenant with you, 
and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God told Noah He's going to destroy all flesh and that everything on the earth will perish. Everything that is except family. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Eight in all will survive. Plus, if you look at verse 19 and following, a few animals as well. And when you read this, the question ought to come to mind is why? Why would God destroy the earth like this? And I mean, especially after five chapters before, in chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God looked down at everything that He had made. He saw everything He made, and behold, it was very good. So why destroy it all if it was so good? Well, the reason comes in, in chapter 6, verse 1. We've already seen it a little bit in verse 13. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Just talking about the violence. But we see in verse 1 it being uh, drawn out a little bit more. It says, Now it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So we see the, the multiplication of people coming. Chapter 5 was a genealogy that spoke about all the people on the earth. It said this, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Now, there's lots of debate here about who the sons of God are and who are the daughters of men. That goes from uh, angelic creatures to um, dynastic rulers to various lines of Cain and Seth, godly and ungodly lines. And, and you know what? We're not going to get into that today. But what we are going to get into is the point of when God saw their sinful activity. Verse 3, He said, My spirit shall not strive with men forever. Because He is also flesh. Nevertheless, His day shall be 120 years. In verse 3, there's a couple of different interpretations about that. Whether 120 years means 120 years from that point on, He's going to destroy all flesh. The Spirit's not going to strive with them. Or whether it means the, the lifespan of people are going to be reduced to 120 years. We don't exactly know. I think the former might, might be better as it took Noah 120 years to, to build the ark. But anyway, it says in verse 4, the, the Nephilim... Anyway, the key is verse 3, right? My spirit shall not strive with men forever. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of men came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. And then verse 5, this is the tragic verse. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the ark thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. In this verse, you see the breadth of man's sin. And you see the depth of man's sin. The Lord looked down upon the sons of man and He saw that, that great was the wickedness upon the earth. And then He goes, when to every heart, He says, that, that every intent of the thoughts of the heart were only evil continually. Not only was there widespread sin, but there was deep-rooted, lasting sin in every man. And God saw it all. God saw how broad it was and how deep it was. And if you think our society is bad, Noah's society was every bit as bad. You think that you have difficulties living existing in our society. Well, Noah experienced a great time of difficulty as well. And, and really, Noah ought to stir us on if he endured and conquered by faith so also we can. But as it says then in verse 6, when God looks and sees this, it says the Lord was sorry. He made man on the earth and He grieved in His heart. Now, how God can grieve, 
How God can be sorry of this creation, I don't know. But we see here an anthropomorphic emotion of God that He grieved. And why did He grieve? He grieved when He saw the sin of the people on the earth. And then He resolved in verse 7 that I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of a land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And again, I am sorry that I have made them. God says, I'm going to destroy them all. But the exception comes in verse 8. <clears throat> but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Here again, we're confronted with the message of grace in the Bible. The wickedness of man great on the earth, and yet Noah found favor, found grace, found kindness. God extended His kindness to Noah. Why? Well, I think the only reason why, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, is because of Noah's faith. Not because of anything good in him, but because he had a faith that trusted in God that sought to live that faith out. So what does God do? He then warns Noah of the coming danger and gives him a way of escape through the storm. That's my first point here, right? Warning. And you've got to realize, this is grace too. The fact that he was warned. I mean, many of us today stand where Noah stood. There's a coming judgment upon the earth. We've been warned. Us in church, we read our Bibles. We're warned there's a coming judgment. God has promised not to flood the world again, but He's going to destroy the world with fire. And He's given us a way of escape through faith in Jesus Christ to protect us from the flames. There's the warning. Just like to Noah, it's His grace. And I can just tell you, they trust in Him. Trust in Him. If you trust in any other place, you have a misguided trust and you'll perish. You'll perish every bit as much as these people perish in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Well, there's the warning. Let's move on to the building. Building. I'm talking about Noah building the ark. Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things yet not yet seen, in reverence he prepared an ark. That is, he built it and arranged it and ordered it and set it all all straight. He did it with his own hands. And surely, this is such a massive project, he surely got the help of some hired men. The instructions are given in verse 14 of Genesis 6. Look at it there. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch to make it waterproof. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top side and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall perish. Here's a promise. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring, two of every kind into the ark, to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it should be for food for you and for them. And thus Noah did 
according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, one of the constant questions that come at this point, mostly by unbelievers, is this. By believers, though, as well. Could, could all these animals really fit on the ark? In fact, I look at the website. Could all the animals really fit on Noah's ark? And it said, no. And listed all the reasons why not. And then it said, yes. And listed all the reasons why. I think the convincing argument is yes. And let me tell you why. First of all, this ark was huge. It's given in cubits. A cubit is how big? About 18 inches, right? About from here to here. 18 inches. And so 300 cubits is how many feet? 450 feet. Okay, let's think about 450 feet. You know what? I haven't measured exactly. I'm guessing 450 feet to the fence of our property out there, to maybe our building. I mean, we're talking a football field and a half, 150 yards. I'm guessing it's somewhere along along that realm, 450 feet. I might be off by 50 or 100 or so, something like that. But it's a long, it's a long deal. It's width, 50 cubits. How wide is that? 75 feet. Alright, this auditorium, you know what, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I'm guessing it's close to 75 feet. Somewhere along that. I'm just thinking about 60 feet, 6 inches, about there. And you add on another 15 feet. We're, uh, we're about as wide as this thing. About as long as our property. And how high? It says uh, 30 cubits high. How many feet is that? 45. How tall is this ceiling here? SR, how tall is the ceiling? You remember we had the scaffolding out here one time? I had the weekly word pictures for you. About 20, 20 feet, 25 feet. So go about twice this high. Alright? It's pretty big. Pretty big. In fact, you do your calculations, you can hold almost 600 modern railroad cars in there. Common calculation, I think, is like 569 or something like that. You ever been stopped by a train? You ever count the cars that go by on a train? Hoom, 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 hoom. How many you come up with? About a hundred. Maybe sometimes more, sometimes less. Hundred. So, you know, think about that. Five or six trains of cargo can fit into this ark. It's pretty big stuff. Inside the ark, perfectly arranged for animals to stay. He said in verse 16, a lower deck and a second and a third deck. Makes three decks inside each of them. How tall? Quick to your math. Engineers. How, how high? 15 feet, because about 45 feet tall. So 15 feet ceilings. Okay, that's for the taller of the animals, like maybe the giraffes and the elephants. Um, but you also, if the decks are that big, you know, you could also stack in some cages, several, three, four high, and maybe for some small animals. You could put them there. They fit just nicely. You know, rabbits and squirrels and mice and birds. You can stick them in their cages and stack them pretty high, 15 feet tall. Also leaves some room for air circulation around there. Now, regarding the number of animals that are in there, there's lots of species of, of animals, um, but many of those are aquatic and so of the land animals, some have estimated that you only need a few thousand animals. Some have counted 35,000 animals, some have said. So let's just say, even if you say 50,000 animals on board, some larger than others. Let's take an average size animal, which is large, by the way. Let's take an average size animal, say like a size of a sheep. If you brought 50,000 sheep on board, 
the ark would be about a, a third full. And then your third full for all the, the food, all the bedding, and dealing with all the waste management of everything you need to deal with with that many animals. I think that if any of us saw how big this ark would, was, I don't think there'd be any doubt in your mind that certainly this could have happened. In fact, there's a, there's a man in Holland. His name's Johan Hubers. He uh, was a Dutch contractor. He built a, a version of the ark. Um, and he wanted to. The reason why he built this ark was to show people how massive it was, to show that you can believe in Genesis, and to renew interest in Christianity there in Holland. And now what he did was he built it only half as long and third of the width so he could travel and move it from location to location. It would be pretty hard to move the whole whole big thing. So his is scaled down quite a bit, but still people on the scaled down model, fifth or sixth of the size, are just in awe of how big this, uh, this ark is. So if you want to be overwhelmed, how many of you want to take a trip with me to Holland? <laughs> You'd love to. Huh? You're, you're, on your bill? You're buying? <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah, we're talking, we're talking with David and we're driving to church. You guys got to help me. We're driving to church and uh, you guys said, David was asked about money or something and what did he say? Yeah, David said, um, I don't have any money right now. I'm buying something. He's my three-year-old. Anyway, the good news is this, though. In just a few years, you won't have to go to Holland. The uh, Creation Museum, our friends down there in Kentucky, um, are in the process of planning and building a full-scale ark down there. About a 45-minute drive away from the Creation Museum, which is about an eight-hour drive from here. And uh, the, it's a $125 million project. Yeah, it's not only the ark, but also they got some other, other things to help um, just kind of basically be a testimony of Christianity. It's going to be down there. $125 million project. $25 million of that is going to be donated. Uh, the rest of the burden, $100 million, is going to be taken up by some private investors to invest to allow that thing to go. But I greatly look forward to visiting that with my family. They're projecting maybe 2014 to get that done. I'd encourage you to give to that project. You can go to, I think it's Ark, the Ark Encounter. Anyone know? Tom, do you know? Tom Wetech, you know? Something like thearkencounter.com, I think, is where it is. Um, but I think it's going to be a great thing when you see how, how big this is and get inside there and just go, whoa, this is gigantic. So pray for them as they do that. You know, I'm hoping they can see that thing by the highway. People are driving by and say, hey, what is that? Well, that's what Noah's Ark looked like. And just stir interest again in, in Genesis. And I hope that such images of the ark will put away those silly little pictures of animals in the tiny little boat. And, and the thing with that is, you've seen those pictures I'm talking about, right? Children, I put them on your notes. You can kind of look at that, the silly pictures like that. What that picture does is just teaches children that the, the story of Noah is a fairy tale. But listen, it's no fairy tale. The story of Noah is real. He really built an ark this big and it really did float and the water really did flood the world and many people did perish. I don't know how many. Millions of people died in the ark. Well, let's think about how Noah actually built the ark. One of our discussions last night at dinner was the process of doing it and one of my children said, oh, how different things were back then. It would have been easy just to give us time to that. I said, no. I think Noah had a life as well. I think he had a, a wife. I know he had a wife. I think he had three children. I think he worked hard to feed them and to clothe them and to house them and to supply for them. I, he didn't just build it with his own. I think he had to have financial resources to be able to build this thing. 
however millions of dollars would be equivalent to today. It was no small task. Even gathering the, the money and the resources and overseeing all the workers, I doubt not that it took 120 years to build. They didn't have electric saws. Everything by hand. They're chopping down the trees, maybe grabbing some ox to grab the trees to where they are, putting in the slats, putting them all in the peg, then the pitch on the outside. You've got to make all that pitch from all the trees, putting it all around. I think it was a big, it was a big project. The more you think about what Noah actually did, the more you come away you're just like amazed that one guy could do this. Well, I think his sons helped and many other helped. But how did, how did he do it? Well, I don't know exactly how he did it, but I know the manner in which he did it. He did it worshiping is my third word. Worshiping. All right. First word, we've seen that already. Warning, building, and now worshiping. And I picked that up from verse 7, right? By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark. And I'm picking this word worshiping out of the word reverence. Because reverencing, maybe reverencing would work, I guess. Um, we're looking for a word that, that worked. Because um, on the one hand, this word reverence um, addresses the obedience of Noah. He, God had commanded it, He did it. Like verse 22 of Genesis 6. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. And there's this, this obedience in there. But it also speaks about the spirit with which he built the ark. Not flippant or doubting. A deep reverential spirit. So he did it as an act of worship unto the Lord. He heard God speak and obeyed Him by building this ark in reverence to Him. That's why I came up with the word worship. Take it or leave it. You know what I'm talking about. I think building this ark wasn't easy. I mean, we could talk about the size of this thing. made it hard. But we can also talk about um, how it was difficult even in the context of Him building that. Meaning, meaning this, is that it appeared probably to many to be a foolish thing as He built this ark. And I think that's in the line of the spirit of, uh, of Hebrews even, is that it was a difficult thing for him to do this. I mean, think about it. such a large boat on dry land with no way to get it to a nearest body of water. I mean, even us with our technology today and machines, R.J. Letourneau would have a difficulty making a machine that big to bring that kind of ark into the water. So, do you know how they make ships today? I didn't even know this. How do you make ships today? The Queen Mary, by the way, or the Titanic. You know, the, the ark is just about the size of the Titanic. Maybe just a little bit smaller. Okay. How do they make those ships today? Do you know? Someone's got to know. Huh? On the coast. They make them on the coast, right? Right. Don't, don't anticipate the uh, um, economy of Rockford to be, you know, boosted by some shipbuilding company. That's not going to happen. On the coast. What else? Huh? In modules. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking for a dry dock. They dig a, dig a big hole where the ship is going to be and they start building it in there. And then what they do is they then drop the, and fill it all up with water. They'll float so they can float it away. That's how they build it. Now, we don't have any sense of where exactly Noah was when he built this thing. My guess is that he built it in his backyard. <laughs> he just Big chunk of land there, you know, a couple acres. He says, I'm going to build my ark right here. And that looks kind of ridiculous, I'm guessing. Um... You know, people, people would have come and seen that ark, looked at it, 
kind of maybe ridiculed him with that a little bit. But, 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 but think here about Noah, though, how hard this would have been for him. And this will just increase your faith as well. A flood of this proportion never happened before. Okay? The whole earth, it says even in, in chapter 7, that it covered the tops of the mountains, the tops of the tallest mountains by another 20 cubits, I think. That never happened before. Um, some doubt even it ever rained before from this uh, quote in Genesis 2 about how mist used to come up on the round. And maybe, maybe ecologically things were a little bit different back then. We don't exactly know. But even if it had rained, he'd never seen a rain like this before. Noah had no reason to know that it would flood. It's not like he could look and, and turn on Channel 9 to look at the meteorologist and says, yep, lots of rain today. In fact, we're going to flood today. He, he, had no ability, he had no way to even predict it or even maybe to look seismologically into the ground to say, oh, you know, this crust is going to break and the depths of the earth are going to come out. All this water is going to... He had, no, he had no reason to know that. If Noah had studied it scientifically, I don't think there was any way he'd come to the conclusion, hey, we're going to have a flood here pretty soon, guys. Flood was totally an unexpected miracle. But listen, God said it and Noah believed it. And I think in this way, Noah puts faith on display because he believed in the things not seen. Isn't that what uh, Hebrews 7.1 says? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it says explicitly here in uh, Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, seen. Here was something nobody had seen before. He hadn't seen it before. He was warned this flood is going to come upon the earth. And he believed it. Noah's faith demonstrated that he just believed God. Even things he couldn't see. Even things he couldn't understand. That hymn we sung today was so excellent, right? I don't, I don't know how, God, you impart faith to people. I don't know how your spirit moves. I don't know why you gave it to me. But... I know whom I believe and persuaded He's able to keep what I've entrusted to Him until that day. And that's the hymn that Moses... I don't know how it's going to flood, oh God. I don't know why you know this. I don't know much about this. All I know is you told me to build an ark and I'm building an ark and I know whom I believe and I'm just trusting this ark to you. That's Noah and that's his faith. And I would say we would do well to learn from Noah's example. So many of us today in our modern age are so tied to scientific data. Oh, let's prove it. Right? I mean, even the whole fact that I had to prove that animals could fit on the ark. I mean, we're like, oh, I wouldn't believe that. I don't think animals could fit on the ark. Well, the Bible says it. Are we going to believe it? Are we going to have to try to be scientifically, try to figure it all out? Or whether some things we just say, you know what? God said it. I believe it. I don't understand it at all but I'm going to take God as Word. Because Noah took God as Word, even to the extent of being called a fool by the world, I believe. Because think about it. Can you imagine someone walking by Mr. and Mrs. Noah's house and seeing this thing? Noah! You know, walking over there. Hey, Noah, what are you, what are you doing there, Noah? You building a house? It looks like a mighty big house. And then Noah tells them about here. You, what? God spoke to you? He said there's going to be a what? A flood? Are you, how much money are you spending on this thing? Did you get a permit for this thing? It's just an eyesore to me. I, I think it's a monument, Noah, to your foolishness. I mean, those things, those things surely must have happened. I mean, you can't build this big a thing and everyone in the neighborhood saying, oh, wow, that's, oh, neat, that's really cool. Yeah, it's going to be a flood. No, they disbelieved. And I think that they mocked him as well. 
And Noah surely had preaching opportunities. Knowing what he knew, that the world was about to be destroyed, I'm sure he was a good prophet exhorting people to turn from their wicked ways. He was called in 2 Peter 2.5 a preacher of righteousness. Preaching righteousness, right? Turn from your wicked ways and come and follow the Lord. And from what we know, he was not too successful in bringing people to repentance. In fact, his church consisted of eight people. It was his church. That's how successful a preacher Noah was after 120 years, if that's how long it took him. In fact, his preaching didn't do much for the generation. Listen how Jesus describes what was like in Noah's day. Luke 17. Verse 26 and 27, Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so also it will happen in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You get the feeling from Jesus' words that just the generation with Noah had no clue of the danger around him. They were marrying, giving in marriage, having a fun time, living for today, living for the moment until Noah entered the ark and the door was slammed and then as soon as the day was, door was slammed, that day the floodwaters began to come. Noah had been telling about this flood. They disbelieved him. They probably mocked him. He walked in. They shut the door. And all of a sudden, thunderclouds came. All of a sudden, water starts to rise. And people going, oh no, we're in trouble. And in trouble they were. Only eight of them were saved. And a bunch of animals. Leads to my fourth point here this morning. Warning, building, worshiping. Point number four, saving. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And there we see the word salvation come about. It's what I'm talking about. What an incredible thing it is that God destroyed the world and saved only eight people. You know, I think when we think of heaven sometimes, we think rightly. Revelation 7, 9, and John says, I looked and behold... There's a great multitude which no one can count, men from every language, men from every, what does it say, tribes and people and tongues, worshiping before the Lord and before the Lamb and before His throne, right? People everywhere. You couldn't even count them from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, is what John was saying in Revelation. And we see the multitudes. We think that God's going to save the vast majority of people on earth. Our church family never assume that. Oh, there will be multitudes. But never assume that the multitudes of Rockford will be saved. Never assume that the multitude of people you know will be saved. Oh, there may be times of revival where there are most of the people are saved in some cultures, but there's no guarantee that most in our culture will be saved. That's for sure. Especially as we model Noah's day as much as any other's day. Jesus said it like this, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many enter that gate. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are that find that gate. Oh, don't get me wrong, there'll be a multitude in heaven, but it may not be the majority of people from our day. Maybe only a few. Jesus himself said, Many are called, but few are chosen. And in Noah's day, it was eight out of millions who were saved. You say, well, that's just, that's just one instance. Well, think about another instance. Think about uh, taking uh, the people out of the Exodus. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, most of them God was not well pleased. So He laid them all except for Joshua and Caleb died in the wilderness because they were unbelieving. 
It was two that came into the promised land. Well, here we see in Genesis 7, the few that are saved. We see God willing to destroy the masses for the sake of the few. Genesis 7.1 Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household. For you alone have I seen to be righteous before me at this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, and a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send my rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of a land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all the Lord had commanded him. And the rest of the chapter tells of the destruction that came as a result of the flood. And that will come in my next point. But now, listen, I want you to see here that the ark became the, the means of salvation. The ark became the... Um, the path through which these eight people were safe and secure. And it was through the ark that the promise of the seed from Genesis 3.15 would survive. And the ark, I say is this, is a picture of our salvation. In Peter's first epistle, he parallels salvation in Noah's day and salvation in our day. So listen closely to what it says. It says, the, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Whatever, it's 120 years or a long time until he built this ark. So the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. In which, in the ark, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So you see all these people perishing, but eight people were in safety being saved through the water. And then he says, corresponding to that now, baptism now saves you. Okay, he said, well, baptism saves you? And then he clarifies, says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh... She's not talking about the water stuff of baptism that's saving you, but the appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, just as the eight were saved through the ark, through the waters, so also waters is a symbol of how we are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, symbolized in baptism. Oh, church family, I just say believe in Christ. Believe in Him to be your safety. If you knew a flood was coming upon the earth, would you get in the ark? Good, good, good. Who was that? Was that Asher? No, it was Ophelia. Thank you. And if you knew destruction of fire is coming, are you going to get in the ark, which is the cross, the resurrection of Christ today? Pray that you do. Get in the ark to be saved. Be saved from this wicked generation. Warning, building, worshiping, saving, and now condemning. Now as we pick up the last part of Chapter 7. But we read in verse 7, Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Here we read that Noah condemned the world. Now, when you hear that, you you can picture this fiery preacher, you know, with evil in his eyes and looking down on you and condemning everybody. I, I don't think that was Noah, okay? Um, I don't think he had an angry disposition. I don't think he had a negative personality. I mean, you can't continue on such a massive project unless you have, you're abounding in optimism, okay? Because you're going to face so many setbacks on the way, there's no way that you can do that. I don't think he was an angry preacher. 
saying you're going to be destroyed. My guess is he called them to repent with tears in his eyes. I think that was Noah. But his life of building was a, an act of condemnation upon an entire world. Seeing his family being saved from the flood, the rest were experiencing the condemnation from God. They're just condemnation, by the way. Verse 13, let's read these horrific events. On the very same day that Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast of its kind, all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the ground after its kind, every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds, so they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. There you just see the, the care of God. That God's closing the door. Like almost saying, okay, you guys are saved. You're okay. Parrot, you're, you're all set. It's like tucking your kids in at night. You're okay. All right, now we'll go out and battle. Verse 17. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains were everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every kind of swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. And of all that was on the dry land in all who was in this, whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Thus He blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in safety in the ark, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days as everything was drying out, finding cracks and crevices that now in the earth. And thus the world was condemned to death. It's a sobering picture, is it not? They had an opportunity to repent, but they refused. They mocked Noah and thereby they mocked God. You know what? They weren't unlike those in our day who mock our message. Peter tells this mocking in Second Epistle. Listen to Second Peter three three. Know this first of all that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, "Where's the promise of His coming?" For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. And Peter says. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, everything's not been the same since the creation of the world. Before God spoke, there was nothing. And He created ex nihilo by the power of His Word. He created all things. And then He says, it was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. So Peter, when these people are mocking... Where's the promise of Jesus coming? Huh? How long has it been? 2,000 years? Where's He going to come? It's just been the same. Right? I mean, life's going to continue on. Oh, maybe another meteor will come and wipe out the dinosaurs. They're going to wipe out us as well. But everything's been the same. Everything's going to be. That's what they say. And then Peter continues. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being 
reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Catch this. The flood in Noah's day is proof of the fires coming at the latter day. If you deny the flood, how easy is it to deny the fire that's coming? All hasn't been the same since the beginning of time. The world was covered with with water. God destroyed the flood. Now, He did promise not to destroy the earth again in that way, but there will be a day when He'll destroy the world with fire. There, There are those who deny the flood you know, there is evidence all around. It is, it is scientifically feasible to explain the world and fossils through a worldwide flood. The Grand Canyon worldwide flood. Mountains erupting. Everything just in upheaval. It's easy. Well, it's difficult, I guess. But there are reasons for that. And I, I think there are some of them who deny the flood because they want to deny the fire also. These things are connected. But the reality of the Word of God is this. There was a flood. There will be a fire if you don't believe in Jesus, the condemnation will come to face eternal punishment. Jesus said, listen to what Jesus said. He said, this is the words of Jesus, right? This is the words of our Savior. Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I mean, I think about Noah and how he condemned the world. Jesus condemned the world. He condemned everyone who didn't believe. He said they're condemned already because they don't believe. Why don't you sink, let that sink into you. The fate of those who died in the flood is the same fate of those who don't believe in Jesus. Condemned. So believe in the Son. And escape the condemnation. Well, that's how Noah condemned the world. He put out his message. People didn't believe. They stood condemned in their unbelief. Noah, on the other hand, rather than standing condemned, became an heir. It's our sixth point here. Warning, building, worshiping, saving, condemning. And we'll rush through these last two. Inheriting. That's this whole aspect about becoming an heir. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and, here it is, became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Focusing on this point about how he became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. An heir means that you become an owner. You possess something. An heir normally possesses a parent's property after they pass away. It's a, But this word doesn't necessarily have to imply a death. It just implies a an inheriting, a a coming to own. One who possesses. And what has Noah possessed? He's possessed righteousness. He's identified here in Genesis several times being a righteous man. Chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his time. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household. For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me at this time. Noah's a righteous man. Now, you can read that one of two ways. Either you can read it like this. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, so God found no reason at all to condemn him to death, so God saved Noah. Okay, you can read it like that and go contra all the spirit of the Bible. Or you can read it like this. Noah was a man of faith who loved God and walked with God. So he sought to live righteously, not for his own lust like the rest of his generation. So God gave him grace to live a blameless life. That's Obviously, the best way to read it, the best way by Hebrews 11, verse 7 to read it, because by faith that he did these things, 
goes the flow of the whole Bible. I mean, this is almost Pauline, isn't it? First, not. He became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We have a righteousness by believing in God alone for our salvation in Christ alone. That's where Noah found his righteousness. And it goes right along with Paul's theology, but it goes along right along with the right of the Hebrews as well. It became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. That's not to deny the outward righteousness of Noah. Noah did have a practical righteousness for sure. William Barclay said it really well in his commentary. He said this, When other men broke God's commandments, Noah kept them. When other men were deaf to God's warnings, Noah listened to them. When other men laughed at God, Noah reverenced him. You see, that's, that's why Noah was blameless, because he had the, an eye towards God, the eye of faith, where others were not. The source of Noah's righteousness was his faith, which is my last point here. Warning, building, worshiping, saving, condemning, inheriting, and finally believing. It's how the verse begins, how the verse ends. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Faith started his life. Faith ends the description of his life as well. And because he had such faith, he was pleasing to God. We learned last week, Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please Him. If He comes to God, must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And that Noah was believing God, was seeking Him, and seeking His reward as well. He was believing. So I just ask you, are you believing this morning? Are you trusting in God like Noah? You know, Noah had all the disadvantages in the world not, not to believe. Or all the disadvantages to believe, whatever that is. He had all these things stacked against him. Stuff he'd never seen before. And we have so much going for us. Will you believe? You know, the thing about Christian biography, whether it's Newton or or Brother Yoon or Dr. Bob Hawkman, the thing about all these things is they're examples of people who live by faith and they stir us on. And I just hope as we went through this exercise this morning of taking the life of Noah, picking apart his life, telling the story of Noah, that you likewise would be a follower of Noah in his faith. Let's pray. O oh God of highest heaven, I would pray that you would, uh, would help us to see God, those who live by faith before us and that we too will walk by faith and not by sight. May we too stand on the promises that You have given us. Even when the world is against us, even when there is mocking, even when people are going their own ways, even when they're ignoring our Savior, Christ Jesus, give us a heart and a faith to follow and trust after You in every way. God, we we need You to come and help us. And may we be those who walk in the footsteps of, of Noah. In Jesus' name, amen.